Welcome to our third episode of the Learn Buteco podcast. Today we continue with our conversation about what the classic Buteco method can offer men and women who are planning to start a family. Conception, pregnancy, birth and the nourishing context in which all of it happens. Healthy breathing for a healthy family. Because the Buteco method is also beneficial for relationships and you are going to hear testimonies about all this. This is the most knowledgeable group of experts on the Buteco method anywhere. Vladimir, Christopher, Martha, Marcel, Irene, Nicholas are joining us again with my co-host Hugh, a dedicated student of the method, asking those questions that you might have. If you are planning to start a family, this podcast could be of great value to you. Enjoy. Okay, so let's get to the perhaps the core of this conversation. Conception, very, very important nowadays. One in every seven couples trying to conceive actually cannot. The NHS says that in the UK, in one in four cases, the cause of infertility is actually not known. One in four cases. Of the known causes also, many factors are actually conditions related to things like hormonal imbalances, immune system problems, emotional stress, and all of us who are familiar with Buteco know what this means. So very important for conception, it seems that the hormonal system is imbalanced, that the immune system is imbalanced, that you're not carrying a huge amount of emotional stress, because this seems to have an impact, a very clear impact in your capacity to conceive. So I thought perhaps Marcel can give us an overview of what is the effect of Buteco on these three fundamental systems, nervous system, immune system, hormonal system, in order to understand that these are in order, it might increase our chances. Well, the, talking about carbon dioxide, it is the most important hormone in the body. It is the precursor or regulator of all metabolic functions, it turns out, far from being a waste gas. Certainly we exhale it, but at our peril. And the whole purpose of the method, in a way, is the retention of carbon dioxide. When the carbon dioxide levels drop, hormone secretion decreases and this applies to all hormones, reproductive hormones in men and women, insulin, thyroxine, the lot. And indeed in diabetics, hyperventilation, stroke, heart attacks, blood clots are very evident. But CO carbon dioxide is the chief hormone. It balances 
hormones. So not only do, does it um, a, an optimal level of carbon dioxide allow for optimal secretion and delivery of hormones, it balances hormones so that certainly I know Christopher has, has seen um, where somebody loses um, part of a thyroid, the loss of thyroxin can be compensated. And then moving on to the immune system, carbon dioxide goes into carbonic acid and this strengthens the immune system, strengthens resistance to allergies, viruses, infections, all good to have. And also, of course, um, it creates a healthier environment in which for all organs to function. It increases the bonding of antigen to antibody that becomes more efficient. So you people find they get fewer colds and flu. And then with the nervous system, there is a linear relationship between the level of carbon dioxide and the excitability of the nervous system. In a deficiency of carbon dioxide, people become irritable. And in fact, it operates on, on both the physical impulse level, you jump back from touching something hot, and then on the chemical level, the changes improves as carbon dioxide increases so that the excitability is reduced, people become calmer, sleep disturbances, stress, anxiety, allergic reactions, they all come off. But in deficiency of carbon dioxide severely disturbs, compromises the um, nervous system. Well, all systems, physiologists know that if your temperature's up, you might have an infection. If carbon dioxide levels are down, there should be some disorder as measured by the rate of respiration. And then there's another thing also involved is that carbon dioxide is a vasodilator. This relates to the cardiovascular system, the brain vessels, bronchus, and the birth canal. So if you've got more carbon dioxide, that will open more easily. One other thing I might mention is when the change of life comes, having higher levels of carbon dioxide makes the whole thing for women much easier. The hot sweats, all that distress is reduced. Another example of how from before birth, uh, we will talk later about the optimal control pause for conception, but throughout the whole stage of life, children, middle age, this method is so helpful to improving the quality of life. Could I just add one more thing? It amazes me, at Martha's talk also, she mentioned the fact there is an, a medical norm for breathing. The doctors don't get down on this. They, they don't want to check it. They find it too difficult. But that is what they should be doing. The health services should be trying to find a way of constantly checking the medical norm for breathing that you, you have. And they don't mention it. All they might say is, oh, you're having trouble breathing. But that's about all. They never say, are you breathing too much? Which should be a common question. Yes, I wanted to add to what you said that um, one of the main reasons I was shocked when I discovered about the classical Buteco method 
was the fact that I never heard anything about the physiological norm for breathing in university, nor in my practice in the hospitals. I never knew anything about it. And I just discovered a huge void. So this was a shock for me, not only as a human being, but as a, as a doctor also. And in simple words about conception, I wanted to add that nature just needs a healthy body to allow it to reproduce. That's why it prefers young people with pink cheeks and full of vital energy with no big brains, you know, just healthy, healthy, healthy bodies. Carbon dioxide plays a huge role. It's a fundamental of health. It's everywhere. It's in the blood circulation. It's in the oxygenation of the cells. It's in the vital energy. It's in how a couple can communicate. It's everywhere. It, it augments everything. So it makes conception really a piece of cake when it's there. Well, it's also yeah. to do with the control pause. Again, it can be measured. Someone's suitability for conception can be measured. And I remember Christopher getting exasperated when I was, you know, just very upset because um, someone I knew had had a cesarean. And he said, well, that person isn't in a fit state to have a baby anyway. So, I, Of course, I had an emotional reaction to that. But what he was meaning is that their control pause is too low. They're not, their body's not in a fit state to conceive, really, to produce a healthy baby or to have a natural birth. It's just not in a good state. And, and what Buteka, is it? Well, Buteka recommended, as far as I understand it, a woman shouldn't actually try to conceive until a control pause is 35 seconds. It's very clear that the control pause, very high control pause, should be there before conception from both the mother and the father. So Vladimir, what has been in your very long experience with the method when it comes to couples help to conceive? Yes, we have to see patients, couple such patients, they would like to, to get to have a baby. And after they see normalize their breathing, they, they could, they had, okay? Yes, many examples. Can I make one uh, mention about the what Irini said? She mentioned the physiological norms. These, I believe, were first done, I think it was Denmark. They didn't did them with soldiers. And it was here they worked out temperature, blood sugar, body temperature, pulse, and so forth. And respiratory rate, they called it. And it was three liters, three to four liters per minute. And then it increased to five to six liters a minute. And now I don't know what it is, but they usually increase it because they look at the norm there's a physiological norm and there's the norm in society. And the norm in society is very different to the physiological norm, of course. This is the average. It, correct. But it used to be, when it was first discovered, first put together, three to four litres per minute. And does Vladimir explain that comports to a control pause of 60 seconds? Around, yeah, 50, 60 seconds, yeah. I saw a textbook of physiology past week and the physiological norm is eight liters now. Yeah, they keep on increasing it. Women come to workshops who are pregnant and routinely their control pause is 10 seconds, which means they're yeah. breathing sometimes more yeah. and they're pregnant. There seems to be a drop just from the fact of becoming pregnant. There seems to be a drop and that's why we have to emphasize that if a woman wants to get pregnant, they should be very healthy first. And the way to measure this level of health is the control pose. So they should do the method before getting pregnant. And 
pregnancy is also going to be much easier, isn't it? It can be a real ordeal for the woman to go through pregnancy with a very low control pose to start with, because it's going to be lowered anyway. Nature cares a lot about the baby. Even if a mother is depleted, it needs the baby to, feel, to be full, so it can be healthy and support when it is born. That's why while being pregnant, a woman may be really tired. I had tiredness. I can speak from my experience. It was a beautiful period. I knew something marvelous was happening inside, but it was not pleasant all the time. I had some kind of hemorrhage, which needed me to stay in bed with no movement for two weeks. I felt that my body was more fragile than before, more vulnerable. And I had morning sickness. There were new things that I had no way of dealing with them, nor I understood why they happened. I was just, again, with no control, just following the path of uh, no knowledge of the base cause of the issues. But, but somehow, somehow nature gives strength to the mother so she can sustain that. And after that, it's a, again, when birth happens, it's a huge depletion of CO2. And if someone has no tool to fill the system up again, which is very important to be able to um, recover from childbirth, again, you need to wait for time and the organism's best try to make things right again. Even to the extent that these mothers get peculiar cravings, you know, three o'clock in the morning, they want either, they want pickles or something sour or some taste, you know, which mm. which implicates certain some enzyme. So it's a very strong feedback mechanism there. There's a relationship between instinct and control pause. Is that correct? That's definitely true. Instinct. I think when people have a control pause less than twenty or so, they have no instinct whatsoever. They think they have instinct. I don't think you get any, I don't know, maybe Vladimir has a remark. I think when you've got a CP of maybe 30, 35, it starts to like, starts to come in. But prior to 20 and so forth, no, there's no, I don't, I don't believe there's much instinct. People say they listen to their body, but mostly the body is lying to them, you know, is and they can't the hear it anyway it's until the control pauses. Uh, quite high. The mechanism is fear-based. The instincts are taken over by a fight-flight mechanism has been my experience. You put that really well, Christopher. They're listening to their bodies, but their bodies are lying to them. This yeah, is, it's, it's just all, it's all confusion. It's all confusion. Vladimir. Yes, it's correct, okay? Because when people even eat, they don't feel, their bodies don't feel. <laughs> It is good for bodies or bad because there is no instinct with low control pose. That's why people sometimes eat some sorry very bad stuff. And when people have increased levels here too, when control pose will be about 40 seconds, connection between body's needs and any food okay will be restored. That's why people just put some piece of food in mouth, they can feel it is good for body or bad. If it is bad, they can spit out. Yes, that's right. If you if you ever had a question of what determines when to follow your instincts and when not, this this will be a great measure to have. Oh, when, when people's control pause go, goes up, they can become very particular 
about what they eat, but also when they eat it. And sometimes when a person is depleted, they will feel like something. They're hungry for, let's say, potato or something, something starchy. And you can offer them something else and they don't want that. I'm not hungry for that. I only want that particular thing that I want. And um, it's, it's curious because in society, uh, which has been going on for a long time, it's kind of rude to refuse food. If I went to Irini's house, or like people in Greece, and I went there, they're going to put on food. If I don't eat, I'll be considered rude. And that's in many cultures um, that you're supposed to eat. And the basis of, um, I mean, in the, I, I can, from a military perspective, you eat and you sleep and you do everything according to number. You do it when ordered. And that's like a fundamental human right to not to sleep when you're sleepy and to eat when you have appetite. And society pressures people to eat at certain times, whether you're hungry or not. I mean, what's the harm in eating a little bit too much or if you're not hungry, you're eating socially? I don't think there's much harm in it. But if you're doing it every day, you're doing it every single day. And I don't know what your families were like, but I know when, as a child, my father was at the dinner table and we ate everything on the plate. And that was it. And we stayed there until it was finished. There was not even a discussion about that, you know. The idea of eating when you have appetite and not eating when you don't have appetite. And I found that as your pauses go up and up and up, you, your eating habits change. Sometimes you eat more, sometimes you eat less, sometimes you miss a meal, and sometimes you become very picky about what you want to eat and what you don't want to eat. You touched upon family life. Everything that we are talking about, uh, you, 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 can, you can make very little difference if there is no harmony in the relationship. You can make very little difference if family life is disrupted. We live in a society where this is becoming increasingly difficult to manage. Uh, in a country like Spain, my country, would you believe it that divorce rate is 65% and it is uh, very close to 50% in many Western countries? So it's, it's not to make a moral judgment because, you know, there's many different reasons why people split, right? But we, we, we really have to talk about that in order to conceive, in order to have a good pregnancy, in order to have a good birth and, and a good first couple of months for, for the baby to develop and being healthy and for the mother to recover, there is a social environment in which people need to live that has to be harmonious. And I think from, from the little experience I still have, what I see is that Interestingly, Buteco is very good for relationships. So, so I think Irene could say something about that. Yes, I have an experience on that. Um, when I was pregnant, I felt that um, my husband's Yorgos um, tenderness and caring was like a nutrient for me. And while having it, I could give it to my baby also. It was really connected. And this connection to be able to work as I found out in the numbers of years that I was in a relationship before and after the method, Buteyko's method, I saw that to really relate and get through my ego and my own flight or fight mechanism and my own defensiveness and my own aggressiveness, 
I should have a kind of energy level that would allow me to be really calm, genuinely calm. I did not have that before. So many times my relationship uh, was on the edge of uh, <laughs> being destroyed somehow with no, <laughs> no reason at all, just because I could not uh, be a calm human being with another calm human being. And after the method in the late, latest years, I discovered that um, it's, it's a very simple thing to be related and to be in the same space with a person and share our lives, but it's a kind of art also which needs a, a huge amount of energy and a certain uh, physiological status, let's say, of the couple. And it's really promising and really um, I enjoy this change very, very much. Not just with my husband and our relationship and with our kids, but also with friends. I, find that I found out that I can connect much, much better while being in a higher control pose than before. That's what I can say from my experience. It's, it's definitely true. Uh, I think Nicolas also has a similar experience with it. Yes, because uh, my wife and I both practice the method and since we started, we noticed the uh, changes. Well, basically the nervous system is less reactive and that means you're less reactive with the other person. So you're more patient, you're more prone to laugh at your own deficiencies and don't judge and that makes things much easier and also one thing that I notice in me is that when it, there is something that bothers me I just spit it out I don't keep it for myself and it's more much more uh, healthy to do that so you spit it out and it's not so important and passes away another thing so, yes, Uteco method, very good for, for relationship. I think one of the things I experienced was I was terrified of being wrong, terrified of it. So I couldn't spit out what I was really thinking. I couldn't even grasp it. Funny you should say that, Martha, because being wrong and having you're your, your very defensive about your own opinions. And I remember talking to a yogi about Uteco method, about breathing and so forth, and someone else was there and they said to him, uh, just off the cuff question, can you read people's mind? And he said, I'm trying to ignore my own mind, <laughs> not to find another mind to, to look inside. And so your own, as uh, uh, Nico said about your, one's own deficiencies, you it, it seems much easier to, I mean, I, I remember teaching in uh, the method in uh, Amravati, there was a group of monks there, and, and they liked it very, the Buddhist monks, and they liked the training very much. And the conversation afterwards got onto the mind. And we all started talking about how untrustworthy our mind was. And one of the re most revered of them all was a chap called Ajahn Sumedho. He's a big abbot and highly respected and been in the robe for probably 40 years or more, 50 years or something. And... Uh, he said, oh, he said, my mind is it is completely untrustworthy. And so that was a very healthy position that one takes because the mind is conditioned by experiences, background, events, spontaneous things which are rising and falling and so forth. And if you have a not such an attached view to it, your own ego it subsides a little bit. And so 
in terms of relationship, if you're going to be patient, how can you be patient if you think you're right all the time? No, I agree with Nicholas and Christopher, but again, about stressful situation, right? Because stress is not bad, provided shallow being at all. Stress doesn't make any impact on health. If people can see, keep shallow being, okay? But people with stress, people who don't know about how to control breath, any stress deepens the breathing. It is a problem. Of course, when people see somebody has big ego, such, such a isolation from other people, right? Everything is revolving around him. It is a big problem for communication. But when people see increased levels, they understand. We're the same. Everyone see has negative features, okay, attributes, but fundamentally we're the same. And mm. people see become more patient, okay, to others. They try to understand, be reasonable, and how Nicholas said, they don't react. They take information and try to help people. I feel some compassion. I'm sorry for somebody because I know his or her breathing not shallow. Okay, it's like I'm sorry for somebody who is sick. All right. I was sitting beside Stalmatsky when we were with a group of doctors and officials from the New South Wales Asthma Foundation. His English wasn't very good. It was okay at that time, but not very good. And they made some remark, which was deeply insulting towards the method and to him in particular. And I think at the time he wasn't sure that he understood it or not, but he did understand it on a certain level. And I remember he sort of turned to me kind of slyly and said, should I be angry? Because if he was going to be angry, he'd have to actually deliberately project it because the emotion wasn't there to feel angry. But if he had to show anger, he could show it. You have a story of a couple who had problems conceiving and you helped them with the Buteyko method. How did that happen? How did you help them with that? The Hasidic community is a very closed community. And so they have particular diseases which are more common in that community than in a, than a wider variety of the, the wider community. And I don't know, I think it, I think, I think it started because they're a tight knit community and their rabbis and so forth, they're very trusted. And so when I went to New York to teach the method, I tried to approach radio stations and TV, TV stations and to promote it, it a dead lot and forget it. I couldn't get anywhere. And I ended up in this group of Jewish folks and, and they're, they're, they're the people that brought me over there, actually, this one family. And um, and it ended up that the summer, some Hasidic rabbis came because they had this and that. And then the word spread. And uh, I had we well, I never promoted it for for people who are having difficulty giving birth. I had no experience in that area. No one ever approached us up to that time and said we're having difficulties um, falling, you know, getting pregnant and so forth until uh, it was in that community. And I was told that it was something to do with her fallopian tubes. They wouldn't, they wouldn't open or they weren't open. Or I, had no, I had no idea what, at that time, I didn't know anything about the subject. I was asthma, allergies, diabetes, chronic fatigue and so forth, Crohn's disease, whatever. And I said, I can't say 
I don't know. I mean, how long it will take, what your pause has to be to get results and so forth. But over my period of working with that community, not everyone, not every single person it was sorted out, obviously, but there were quite a few. And one couple in particular I still remember very well. They tried and tried for a long, long time. And it was straight after she learned the method and her pauses came up. She really pushed. She pushed very hard. I remember her pushing very hard. Husband, not so much, but she did. And she fell pregnant within weeks after a course. And they, the connection was so strong that they called me. They even said, by the way, you know, I said, well, good, you know. And that was to do with the fallopian tubes. They were in the camera business. So I was invited to go and get a camera. <laughs> and yeah. I've, I've also worked with a few mothers having difficulty conceiving. Uh, they're usually very impatient. They don't want to get their control pause as high as 35 seconds. They just want a baby. So they usually fall pregnant around control pause of 25 is what I've seen. And um, I was talking to Renata last night, who's one on our team. She's 16 weeks pregnant. She's 40 years old. And she was complaining that her control pause had dropped to 42 seconds. And what was going on? <laughs> I said, well, you know, your, your, your reserve is being used up by the baby a bit, but you'll be fine. She's had She's no, greedy baby. <laughs> she's had no um, morning sickness. She's resting. She's enjoying resting more. She's less, what do you say? She tends to be very active. So she's actually enjoying the rest because the hormones do help you to rest. She seems to be really thriving, loving every minute of it. Beautiful. This is a great example as to why any couple thinking of creating a family should consider this method. Because if the Puteka method can help us with such a delicate process as conception, birth and the nourishing environment necessary for it, Hugh, it seems it can't be emphasized enough the degree to which the Puteka method can put us in charge of our own health, doesn't it? Just say that, or to use the word control in a slightly different context. From my standpoint as a student of the Bateco method, and recently discovering that I've been far too complacent for my own good, if one does not practice enough or in the right way, one may be unable to avoid the ill health one so blithely thinks one can. Some people like notes instruction manuals, etc. Personally, I don't, and I have never paid much attention to the painstaking notes on practice that have been sent to me. And I would say that all one needs to work on is very well expressed by Martha Rowe in her invitation to group follow-up session. And I quote, Dear Bateco students, maintain momentum of practice integrate practice into daily activities, refine and increase your maximum pause, refine your daily breathing pattern, develop skill in treating symptoms and cleansing reactions, track your losses in CO2, increase your control pause. To me, this is the meat of the matter and all one needs to understand and work on, therefore follow-up is most important. 
Christopher has said that he was fascinated to discover that what may be the right instruction for one student is not the same for another. One size does not fit all. I don't know whether Christopher would agree with any of that. Yes, well, that's what I, that's what I've seen time and time again. And where this merges with a sense of relaxation and freedom, it's, it's a great feeling. I always remember the German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was executed by the Nazis, and he said, if you set out to be free, first learn to govern your soul and your senses. And I just, things stay with you over the years if they mean something to you. And that meant a lot to me. And now this feeling of empowerment from being able to control the way one breathes and to exercise only within one's capacity to control one's breathing and to feel that getting stronger and one's stamina increasing is, is really very invigorating. There's something about being passive and just sort of falling down a hillside, so to speak, or at least if you're on a toboggan and you've got some sort of control, you know, obviously things are going to come to a, an end, but you've got some measure where you're more or less steering the thing to some degree, and it's not entirely this out of control, spinning out of control, bit of wreckage falling down the side of a mountain. I mean, um, even to do with things like your philosophical approach, if you've got a good, if your control pause is reasonable, you'll find certain modalities of philosophy or ideas actually contribute to your breathing becoming shallower and others make have the reverse effect. And so that you can even make judgment, not judgment so much, but you can even go with, well, I think I prefer this way to that way because that way is disturbing, that way upsets things, that way deepens the breath, promotes greed and the ego and this approach promotes a more calmer and uh, more uh, controlled, not controlled, the word control, it, it can imply this harsh, strict rigor. I don't think Hugh means that, nor do I. It's some sort of, you're guiding something, you're participating in your own situation as opposed to being like a, like a rock just falling down the side of a mountain, you know what I mean? But, uh, <laughs> Yeah. Under the impression that you're doing the right thing. And that's why they're called the diseases of civilization. Because civilization requires synchronization. It requires everyone to do the same thing at the same time. To eat at the same time, to sleep at the same time, and to think the same way. And usually there's a small number of people who are dictating that. You know, and so when you start to impose upon yourself and try and bring some self-regulation into things, that's a, it's an enormously, um, I don't liberating is a word that's probably overused, but empowering is probably, again, empowering is usually has some political connotation, but real empowerment is not political. Real empowerment is being in the center of yourself. Well, I think those were very good closing statements. I urge anybody listening to the podcast that they find out for themselves, yeah, that they go to our website, which is learnbutekoonline.net, 
and look at the many testimonies that they can find there of people who have changed their lives and their health completely by the method. Go to the Learn Buteco YouTube channel as well. If your mother language is not English, you also have the chance to find the method in your language. It could be Greek, it could be Spanish, it could be Hebrew and more. Visit the website and sign up for one of the free webinars to find out for yourself, to make your questions, to talk about your condition and ask the practitioners. They're very generous with their time and they're going to give you good advice as you're going to find out if this is something that is going to fit for you. So thank you. Thank you so much to all. This is a great project. Uh, I personally loving it. I love these conversations that we're having about this very, very important method to find out about these days. Absolutely. Till the next one. Okay. See you there. Goodbye. Bye -bye. Thank you.